This is episode number 99. That's right, number 99 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. That's right, I'm just going to say it again, because we're one away from the big 100. That's 99 episodes. We've been doing this for so long. The centennial episode. I want to take this moment to shout out, say thank you to everyone who's still listening who hung in there with us when we took a, a break. We just left everybody hanging. <laughs> I apologize deeply for that, but we're back. And we're going to take it straight through to 100. I don't know what we're going to do next week. It's going to be crazy. Can we do fireworks here in the office? I don't know. That might be... Well, we're getting ready to leave it. So yeah, I think so. And burn it to the ground. <laughs> Go on a blaze of glory. <laughs> we did champagne in episode 50, so at least that. So you have to one-up that. Mm-hmm. So sparklers and champagne, maybe? I mean, we yeah. just it was just Marcus's birthday. Yeah. So we missed that. That could have been a pretty crazy episode. We'll figure it out. We'll come up with something. If you have an idea out there, you're listening right now, you have an idea of how we should celebrate live on the Bearded Marketers episode 100. All right. If anybody out there has an idea, hit us up, thebeardedmarketers.com slash contact or on Twitter. We're out there, thebeardednktrs on twitter.com. Of course, as always, you can find new episodes every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else where podcasts end up. That's out of the way. What Most are we importantly, drinking? Yeah. What you drinking? Yeah, exactly. I'm just going whiskey Coke. We're still okay. running freaking dangerously low over here. I mean, you did get some mixers this week. I appreciate that. I did. I did. But uh, we still don't have the complete picture to make something delicious. So. Okay. Maybe that's for episode 100. Anyway. I'm drinking. I'm sticking with my theme from last week. Just some Glen Fittage 15. Double neat. This is my second one, I believe. It's been a little bit of a rough Friday. So, so, so you're practically at Madman's yeah, stat right there. I'm on my way. But let's go ahead and get into this episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. Today, wider range of topics. We're covering a lot of bases, which makes me excited. So Rob's going to kick it off with e-commerce site search tips and examples. How do you need to handle when people search on our sites? Pete, that's oftentimes a neglected part of web development and how you plan for things, but it's shouldn't be because a lot of people use it. Small tips on adding penalty language in CTAs. That's confusing, but we're going to help clear that up and it'll be an interesting discussion actually. Customer reviews, why you need them and how to do them right. That last piece, oh so key. How do you deploy customer reviews well? But also maybe we'll do a part two next week about how do you get them? Because I think that's where a lot of people struggle as well. Then we're going to transition to best practices for starting your A-B testing organization. That's something we get asked a lot. We talk about testing on this podcast and a few people have come up to us and go, that sounds great. I got the budget. I bought in. But how do I start? We're going to cover that. And it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't check in with the people that hold the power, Google. And is there anything that they're up to that we need to be paying attention to? So Rob, kick us off. E-commerce site. I'm selling my products. Best in class. How do I conquer search to where people don't enter in that search term and go, (laughs) what is this page? That's not what I was looking for. First of all, like you said, we got a lot of topics. They're going to go deep. I have a feeling we're going to run long. So I want to run through this one pretty quickly. Okay. We're actually talking about this with a partner on our own website is the context we were using earlier today where we're talking about the use of search boxes. So Mm -hmm. that got me looking. Found an article by eConsultancy. You can check them out, eConsultancy.com. They have a blog. They also have some other good content. But the title of this one is 24 Best Practice Tips for E-Commerce Site Search. I'm going to go through each and every one. No, I'm not going to do that. That's way too many. But I'm going to give you the ones that are important. First and foremost, I'm not. I'm going to go out of order here because this is the one we were talking about so today. So edgy. <laughs> is that 
if you're gonna use search, you better make sure your damn search engine works well. One of the ones they mentioned was certainly, if you have zero results, don't just send people to a, oops, we couldn't find anything mm -hmm. type page. Pull in some of your most popular products, things like that. So that's one of the tips. But again, back to use your search engine the way in which you think people might be using it. And if you're not tracking how people are using it, that's another thing. That well, that's what I was gonna point out. It's interesting, not only is that a tip that I see a lot of people doing, shockingly enough, but talking with people, it is surprising to me to know when I ask people, what do you do from a search standpoint in the way of analytics and dicing? You know, what are some of our top no result type of queries, things like that? People give you a blank stare like I never would have thought to track that. And that stuff's very important to mm -hmm. assessing quality. Like you mentioned, you know, you need to know where your search might be struggling and what your people are actually looking for, not just to make sure that you are returning good pages. But oftentimes what I found in some businesses is those search terms that people are looking for might spur on product ideas. Maybe there are some other things in the industry that people are looking for to see if you have them and therefore can give you an idea of maybe what we need to do from a feature standpoint or what we need to offer mm -hmm. uh, from products and things like that. So wealth of information there. Yeah, that's actually one of the things we're working with one of our clients is we're trying to optimize a homepage. Mm -hmm. um, and we recognize that a lot of people are using the search box and I'm trying to dig deeper and find out how are people using this search box? Is this even a good thing? Mm -hmm. You know, how does this give us insight into, you know, everything you were just talking about there? So let me get through some of these other ones here really quickly. Number one, make the search box easy to spot. This one seems like a given, but lately people are getting awfully damn, like you were saying I was, edgy with their designs. And the example they have here is Zara's website, but one that I use on the regular is unsplash.com for cool, edgy stock photos. I didn't even know they had a search box for the <laughs> longest time because it doesn't look like one. So a lot of companies or, or websites are using this sort of the word search, maybe even the search icon yeah. and just a line there. Nothing happened. Like you click on it, you type something in, there's not even a button there. You're just supposed to intuitively know. It's very hard to spot. Yeah, go ahead and ask Doesn't your uh, mother-in-law to go ahead and try and ask her, yeah. where's the search box? And see well, what happens. site like Zara probably doesn't want her shopping there. Your hey, money's but, still good. <laughs> but point stands, don't get too freaky and edgy with the You know, mm -hmm. UX, UI makes sense. Right. Stick to the basics. They're, they're, they're that way for a reason. Sometimes um, you can over-design the experience. Yeah. Another one, big enough for typical queries. Uh, this sort of mm. falls into that one. You know, I see that happen a lot too is depending on the type of site you're on, people may have to type out four or five longish words mm -hmm. in the search box. And if your search box isn't long enough for me to see what I've typed in there, maybe it's only long enough to show 10 characters or something like that. Then it's not going to cut it. It's going to make me, it's going to make it kind of hard to use. So that's another quick thing that you can do. Especially on things like a mobile device. Yeah. Trying to like go backwards and use a cursor. Ooh. Absolutely. Uh, another one, and this helps with mobile devices, depending on how you do it. Mm -hmm. Auto-completes. That's my new thing, man. When mm -hmm. Google introduced that, I, that's, I'm like hooked on it now. I can't ever finish a, typing out a search query anymore. Mm -hmm. And if Google doesn't get the autocomplete right, I get pissed. Do auto-completes if you can, if you have the tech. It's out there and it's not that big of a deal. Well, since we're talking about e-commerce, I would challenge some people to really give that thought. There are quite a few providers in the space. You need to really be emphasized on speed of delivery. Quite a few of them also take some time to warm up. Most have two-prong attack with this. They have an algorithm that runs behind it, which is assessing what people are searching for and optimizing for that. They'll also scan your product catalog and kind of build their own trees, but that can take time. So if you are testing autocomplete, just give it 
enough time to really start to mature. And you might see that the performance differences over time radically change. But also, if you do sell products that are hard to spell, sometimes autocomplete can really help people navigate your site. I've worked with companies in the past where they might be buying sports merchandise with people's names, which can be sometimes difficult to know how to exactly spell and search for. So if you have a product set where spelling might be a bit difficult, especially for memory, autocomplete can be a good time saver for people. So another thing to maybe consider depending yeah. on your product mix. Make it easy for the masses of dumb people who want to give you money. Oh, yeah. Um, the final one on here, we ended up, I think, talking about this longer than I really wanted to. This is really, we're just talking about search, but placeholder text, I mean, it's sort of a given. Shockingly enough, there's a lot of websites out there not using it properly. They'll put placeholder text in there, but you click on it and then you have to clear it yourself. <laughs> right. Which blows my mind that mm -hmm. that's still a thing. But, you know, if you're going to use placeholder text, which I, think, which I think is useful to help set the context for how you want people to be using your search engine, make sure it clears properly and you're actually doing it the correct way. I think the actual HTML tag is called placeholder. Don't just fill it with text. <laughs> There's one last comment I wanted to have here, which is that I wanted to ask you what your search habits were on websites, because there's only two websites in the universe that I use search boxes on. It's Google and it's Amazon. And I think this is because I don't think it's going to work well. I don't mm -hmm. use a search box anywhere else. I would say that actually mirrors my experience. Most I try to use the menus to navigate because a lot of it I think is this built-in experience and hesitation because of poor implementation and websites in the past. So I would say mine's actually very similar to yours. Unless I'm going to a site where I'm searching a very particular product and doing comparison shopping. Mm. But oftentimes that is completed at Google and I'm just clicking through listings from there. But that has happened a few times. So very particular product searches as well, just to check pricing and whatnot. Okay. We're the internet elite. So all those tips don't apply to us. Exactly. But moving on. What else are we talking about? So I did want to read this article. It's from Copy Blogger. And uh, I would say they have decent content. It really depends on the uh, author, as with most sites. To be have. frank, used to be much better. It, yes, I should, I should preface with that. But this was an interesting article, actually, in which they titled... Adding penalty can dramatically improve your calls to action. Interesting, this is copy blogger because I would phrase it a bit differently based on the, the content of the article. But I thought it was an interesting one to talk about because few really explore this feature. And so I wanted to go over a couple of them really quickly and might spur on some thoughts in your own mind on if you are running a site or a product or a service or things of that nature, how can you use some of these tactics to maybe increase the pressure for the close of the sale, whatever that might be. Maybe it's a lead collection, things of that nature. I think a lot of people are hesitant to do that because being conscious of conversion rates already, but I've tested this on quite a few sites and seen some good success. So first and foremost, price goes up at a deadline. So testing at X date, things go up. I know that we've seen some good success with that in selling events and things like that with some of our partners. You can also play around with limited supply scarcity is a really great motivator so Amazon I think deploys this very well along with some mm -hmm. other e-commerce sites 
things left in stock. I love the way that Amazon does that. And I would say that a sidebar to that is potentially, and I think eBay does this quite well, is how many people are also looking at this product. So adding in scarcity plus competition, basically boiling down to kind of site vibrancy and how people are consuming the content and the rush to kind of beat out the other hunters, so to say, really tapping into that caveman mentality. Mm-hmm. Offers that end if certain requirements are met. So this is an interesting one in that I think it adds urgency to the end user, but it might spur on a social aspect as well to have people spread the word. So what they're talking about here as a, like an example is there is a company, uh, which I actually like, and we've bought quite a few things from there, is Mass Drop. And so how this site works is they go to manufacturers and they organize a group buy, so to say. Then they have criteria of certain amount of people need to commit to purchase this and pay. If that's fulfilled, then the group buy goes through at a very discounted price. Then if we meet other criteria, the price continues to drop. Potentially playing around with things like that can not only get people to come over the hump and commit to whatever you're asking them, maybe it's inputting some information, things like that, but also because you've incentivized them to share the details because it might benefit them, you might find that you are essentially creating advocates and marketers for your action that you're desiring of them because of that drive to meet those criteria before the offer is fulfilled. Interesting tactic that not a lot of people play around with, but we've seen some pretty good success with. Missed opportunities. So this is tapping into that feeling of this might be the potential last day for this to be available and you don't want to miss out on this. You know, potentially reinforcing that with testimonials of people loving this offer, playing around with that urgency, how many hours left, even playing around with your copy. You don't want to be caught without this great deal. Here are the amount of people that have joined up so far and really tapping into that a fear of what happens if I do miss out on this. Maybe reinforcing that with it's been one year or two years since we've offered at this price before or since we've had this event. And so really upping the perceived value of what you have to offer and what you're asking for people can really help them come over the hump. Also, and that's, I think this is pretty key and an interesting one is reminding the prospects of their competition. Thinking about copy wording like 24 1,566 other people are getting this email. Ooh, I don't want to be left out. What if it's like my competitor and they're getting the tips or other people are buying it? I'm going to look like an idiot. More than 20,000 other podcast listeners are hearing this offer. Oh, I got to be in that group. I can't let people beat me out. More than 10,000 people visit this site each month. I need to be part of that group tapping into not only the competition, but humans' desires to build communities and be part of them and not left out, I think is really key there. So some interesting tips. It's actually a very interesting article. Again, we tweet out all of these links. So follow us on Twitter and you'll see this link tweeted later this week. Did you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that fortunately, I think for a lot of the smaller e-commerce people out there, the huge e-commerce e-commerce players don't really take advantage of a lot of these tips and, mm-hmm. and strategies. And I think that's just because there's so much corporate structure there that they can't get some of these ideas through, that too many people disagree with the concepts. And so they can't get these things off the ground. So it leaves a lot of opportunity for smaller companies to test a lot of these different weird strategies out of, you know, doing timed sales and, you know, just all of those things that you talked about. That's what the small players can really take advantage sure. of to, to give themselves a leg up over the big guys who have the big guns. So yeah. how, do, how do we sort of guerrilla warfare against those guys? And I think those Absolutely. are some great examples of how to do that. So customer reviews, tell us, how do we do these correctly? Because so many people... <sighs> 
straight embarrassing with how they're doing it. Yeah, I picked two e-commerce articles for this week. So I'm going to talk about Amazon so a lot. we're making people rich with this episode. Yeah, because all I do is shop on Amazon, <laughs> really for anything. Yet another e-consultancy article. And actually, as I'm looking at this right now to read some of these stats, I'm realizing for some reason that several of them are from 2011 and 2010, even though this article is from this week. So when I give you this, this information, keep that in mind. But all of these stats have probably increased and improved across the board because okay. this is kind of old and outdated. So... According to stats, 50 or more reviews per product can mean a 4.6% increase in conversion rates. Now, that's not an old stat. That's apparently a newer one. So that's huge, especially in the world of e-commerce where rate, you know most companies have razor-thin margins mm-hmm. because everybody's competing on price. Having a bunch of good reviews out there uh, really does make a difference. 63% of customers are more likely to make a purchase from a site which has user reviews. I would say this is one of those stats that's from 2011. I would say that for me in 2011, reviews weren't as important as they are today. I think that if I'm on a website trying to buy a product if there aren't a ton of reviews, I'm not buying from mm-hmm. them. Is that because you're hesitant to purchase the product because you're worried about your own satisfaction or you feel like that's a, and maybe it's both, a mark of credibility by the merchant itself? I think it's just become like the standard for me. Mm, like I conditional. Think it's, it's just one of those things that you have to have as an e-commerce site now. It, it's along the lines of making me sign up for an account before I can purchase. You know, that's mm-hmm. a disqualifier. Not having reviews is a disqualifier for me now. Now, do you do reviews yourself? Absolutely not. <laughs> so there we talked about that the challenge before. for yeah. companies. <laughs> I rely on people unlike myself <laughs> to give me their opinion. No, I don't take the time to do that. I probably should and be a better, I don't Steward. know, what would you call you, an internet community member? I don't mm-hmm. know. A couple more stats here. So beyond the stats, I want to talk about some things about reviews. I know that you come from e-commerce, so I know you have some some thoughts to add here. And I love me some Amazon. <laughs> And a key part of Amazon is the reviews engine because I think they do it very well and I think they do it pretty differently than a lot of other people. And that's probably just because they're so huge and they have so many that affords them opportunities that many other companies don't have. But I wanted to talk about a few things that I look for personally in reviews and that were mentioned in this article and that I think are important. Some of the benefits of reviews, which we've already talked about some of those, which are, especially if the reviews are good, obviously, it increases conversion rates, but in and of itself, having reviews lends credibility. There's a huge SEO benefit for reviews, which is another thing that people don't talk about, but is is something that is important to me in front of mind for me because I come from an SEO background from, you know, decade or so ago and user-driven content was always a huge part of that stuff. And if you have a popular product, then you can get hundreds, maybe thousands of people writing reviews instead of just giving you five-star ratings or whatever, actually Mm -hmm. writing content about these things. It's a great opportunity to get a hugely authoritative page on a particular product, but also to be able to rank for those delicious keyword phrases that have review in them, optimizing for those, because those are huge money phrases now. Again, which is a point I brought up at the beginning, I think reviews maybe weren't as important many years ago, but I think it's like the go-to thing that people look for now is what's the online opinion of X, right? It's shocking to me how trusting they are of these said reviews too. There doesn't seem to be a lot of, at least what I see exuded from people, this notion of like, can I trust these reviews? It's more like they just want that social reinforcement and they're just hungry for it. Well, even if it's not so much about trust, it's kind of weird. I just kind of want to get a feel for 
what the general sentiment is. Even greatly negative reviews can lend a bunch of insight into what are the particular downfalls right. to this. And, oh, and you're super picky. That doesn't apply to me. Right. And, and that's one of the things they cover in this e-consultancy article is that negative reviews can actually be good mm-hmm. for several reasons. One is that is that negative reviews could be negative, but not actually negative. But here's another good thing that I don't think a lot of companies and businesses pay attention to, which is that a negative review that is soundly negative, meaning your product is missing features that it thought, you know, people are assuming it has, can do so much good for you because number one, it informs you about what people are looking for. But number two, maybe it helps weed out a lot of customers who are going to have to return it or want refunds or cause a bunch of headache for you anyway. So more information in those regards is better. So having those reviews out there does provide a benefit. Also, I would say even for those negative reviews, what that provides you with sometimes is a great example of your customer service. So there are some sites as well that allow comments to reviews. And I think it does reassure some people when they have a bad experience to see that the site's actually responding to people and offering refunds or ways to rectify the situation or just having that dialogue. I think even if to your point, if there's negative comments on the site, seeing that interaction, I think to me shows, oh, this person that actually cares. Right. And um, they don't delete just the right. you know bad reviews. A couple other things I want to mention. I mean, we can continue sort of going off in these tangents, but was this helpful is a mm-hmm. great little feature to have on comments. I mean, I think it's been a huge driver for why I think Amazon's review section is so useful because, and again, I don't rate them myself, a terrible person, but you're a taker. The community of people, <laughs> yeah, I'm a taker. The community of people who read reviews critically, sort of upvote and down vote reviews of reviews really takes it to another level and helps weed out the positive reviews that maybe don't have anything to offer or the negative ones that are, you know, complaining about the wrong thing. For example, I think, I think you see this oftentimes on Amazon where people review the shipping or -hmm. like complain about UPS in the product reviews. Um, (laughs) Right. The community can help clean that up for you and it's great. And it also helps you can build these processes in Again, I'm going to say the word Amazon a million times. Like an Amazon has, you can sort by those most helpful ones and automatically make it way easier for your customers to be using your reviews. Another part of that is average scores of reviews. I mean, that seems like a given, um, but some companies don't do that very well. And the breakdown of the scores. So to just give an average is okay, but to actually give the breakdown of like, okay, there were actually 100 five-star reviews Mm -hmm. and 21 stars. So that tells a very different picture than 100 three-star reviews. Even though the scores may be similar, it's a totally different story there Mm -hmm. being told. So maybe there was just a time where we had a poor product and we fixed that. And so now, you know, that helps customers understand that situation. Summaries is another huge one. To be able to build an engine smart enough that can look through reviews and pick out the pieces of them that are useful Mm -hmm. and that talk about phrases and things that people would typically want to see in a review is really useful. And the final one is detail. And this is one that you mentioned, the ability to leave comments. The ability to leave long comments, I think, is hugely important. Giving a rating, a star rating, giving a sort of quick 10 word, you know, description of your review. I love it. You know, five stars, (laughs) but also the ability to write out paragraphs. If that's what you want to do for the product review, that's huge. 
that mm-hmm. makes a big difference. I think two other things coupled with that, since you said I am a star child from e-commerce to give my thoughts. And I'll use some Amazon examples. One of the things that I like from them, even though they deploy it pretty poorly, is the ability to search reviews. Mm. And if you are looking for a particular thing, maybe there are multiple features from a particular product or things that you're looking for. And to be able to tease out, okay, what are the reviews that actually talk about this I think are nice. You know, I don't know if a lot of sites have the library of reviews where a feature like that might make sense, but I do like that aspect. I will also say the ability to ask reviewers questions I think is very powerful. And there are quite a few sites that are now implementing things like this because not only are you empowering people to feel more confident about their purchase and maybe saving on customer service time of people calling in, but another thing to consider is, okay, one person has taken the time to ask that question. That might be 10% of people that didn't convert have that exact question, but they just didn't take the time to do it. So publishing out those questions might have a long tail effect to really help people feel confident in how they need to potentially rewrite product descriptions or just having that content in general. And the last thing that I'll say is, and Amazon actually doesn't deploy something like this. You sort of hinted at it with the summaries is I've noticed quite a few sites implementing certain ratings within ratings on certain key features. So for example, like if you go to Zappos, they'll have actual criteria that you do a subrating on. So you'll write your review and then they'll have something like comfort and true to fit. Banana Republic's a great example of this. So having some of these sort of sub bullets within, I think also help people tease out, okay, this is a four 0.6 star review, there might be some other things that I'm interested in. I don't really want to read all of this, particularly like in clothing or textiles. You might find that asking people to do a another star review on a couple different attributes might be a big benefit. I know Power Reviews, which is a third party vendor, does a lot of that. So maybe something to consider as well to help, again, your users get the most out of your reviews. Whew, all right. That was great. That was amazing. Neither one of us know much about A-B testing. <laughs> No, of course not. (laughs) Tell us about best practices since we're learning ourselves. Oh, yeah. Tell us about best practices. What do we tell clients about how to operate their A-B testing programs? So this is something that, I mean, I think both of us have been in the industry now for about nine, eight years. So I'd like to say a decade. I round up. All seasoned vets. And this was actually spurred on by an article. I won't name the people, but uh, it was eight best practices when starting an A-B testing program, it was straight terrible. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take your idea and actually make it good. So this is a list from my mind's eye based on the experience and what what we tell clients and how you need to, let's say you do have the budget, you have the idea, you have the buy off, we're going to start testing or you're really in the infancy of it. How do you tackle that? So I'm going to go through a couple bullet points and things to consider on what that life cycle really needs to look like for you to save some headache and really set yourself up for success in the future. And the first thing is getting freaky with your metrics, understanding kind of where the opportunities are, but you need to get a good grasp of what's happening on your site. And and maybe that means working with your analytics team, but you need to kind of understand what is the state of affairs with things going on here, because that's going to be important for you to assess those opportunities. But also before you really need to get into testing, I feel like you need to put together kind of a roadmap of 
what are our priorities? And that's going to steer the type of testing that we're probably going to be tackling in, let's say, year one. And that's going to come into play supremely when you're looking to picking tools and some other things that we'll get into. But you do need to, again, get a solid grasp of your metrics and assess what are the opportunity areas for our website. And some of that is going to take understanding statistics and how do we assess those priorities. We might notice that a lot of people are leaving from different sections, but what does a lot of people mean? How do we prioritize that stuff? What do these metrics actually mean and how to model them correctly is supremely important. So once you've gotten a handle on that, you've put together your roadmap on, I think these are the opportunities. I think you also need to assess what are the internal resources I have to help me complete this testing roadmap. Now, this is before you even get into tools. So do I have designer support? Do I have development support? What does that look like? Because that might change your type of roadmap. Maybe you have all these very dev intensive things, but you really can't get on the IT roadmap. So that really changes what you can test or what resources you need to go out and acquire, but that also might change the tools that you get. And so that's the next thing is once you've understood your resources allocation and what you can get to help you accomplish this roadmap, you've tweaked your roadmap based on all of that. Well, now time to go out and get the tool that'll help me best accomplish that. And sometimes people go out and get Ferraris, but they're essentially just going to be driving them around in a parking lot in circles. And so better understanding your resource picture and what you can actually test, I think to me helps dictate what is the right tool. And sometimes it means going with those lower tier tools, because quite frankly, you can't accomplish a complex roadmap at this point. You don't necessarily have the corporate buy-in or budget yet. And so maybe something like an Optimizely or a visual website optimizer is fine. And some people poo-poo on that. And they're like, oh, you're not like with a serious tool like Maximizer or Target or whatever. But at the end of the day, if you aren't able to use all of the features of these huge enterprise tools that are costly, then all you're doing is just pissing money away and potentially overcomplicating your day-to-day testing operations and potentially putting a, a large barrier to you effectively getting in and, and accomplishing your test. So once you've done all that, you've picked your right partner, you do need to go back and engage your analytics team though, because you need to have that solid partnership. A lot of testing tools are built to give you high-end snapshot of what's happening in your test, but you do need to really dissect and understand what's going on. And that's going to take a good marriage with analytics. So make sure you get your analytics people back involved and make sure that that tool is going to be a great partner there. You need to set up some protocols for how you determine success and duration. So establishing how long do we need to run these tests for? How many samples do we need to collect? How much risk are we willing to take on? You know, 95% significance is great. Running tests to full sample size is something that we always look to do. But if we're a small company, there's an opportunity cost for doing that. And maybe we need to accept some more risk and say, hey, we're just really looking for trend data at this point. We're a startup. We need to get quick to market. We don't have time to run these pharmacy level tests and get to high-end significance because we just can't wait that long. So that's more of a question internally about what does that look like but you need to stick to it. Once you establish them, don't be influenced because you really love this test and and you think that this was your great idea. You have to stick with your protocols because it'll help save your bacon in the end, especially once you start having to manage tests for multiple individuals in your organization and making things fair and equitable. 
also, and I think this helps save people in the long term. It's not something you think about until you get into some hot water. It's just making sure that you establish communication guidelines. So who needs to know about testing, how often you're going to update people and what they are to expect. Many people get themselves in trouble with testing because they're overactive and checking metrics and over communicating. And if you've run testing for very long, you'll know that sometimes test results change or switch. It can be a very dynamic environment. And so if you're over eager and starting to communicate that stuff, you can start to have people question your credibility because it's, well, you told me two days ago that this test was doing well. Now it's returned back to a baseline. Are you sure that there's not any problems? So make sure that you give your tests a lot of time to settle before you start communicating out results, but also be mindful of who you're doing that with because you can spend a lot of time chasing rabbit holes with people that don't know anything about statistics or what you're doing and can really hinder you being able to accomplish that roadmap. And then the last thing I have here, there's many others, but for our episode today is make sure you start small. Ensure that you invest in some good QA practices. So I've seen a lot of testing programs get out the door strong. And one of the very first tests that they pick to queue up is let's tackle our payment page. So they come up with these designs, they launch a test, and because of an issue within their test coding, come to find out 20% of the transactions for that day are garbage because of some of the coding issues with it. And now the company is hesitant forever to ever run tests again because of that huge mistake. So what I mean by that is not to tell you never test on important pages, but make sure that get some experience under your belt first before you go and tackle pages that can really set you up for some heated conversations uh, or something that you might be responsible for that might put your program or your job on the line. But also a lot of these tools in the industry are great, but having a second pair of eyes, QAing and things like that will help you protect against yourself. But again, it's just nice to have someone else checking our work and making sure that uh, everything is up to par. Those are my quick best practices on how you start. Maybe we'll keep going through this as the weeks go on, depending on what you all want from us. But uh, I thought that might help those people and might be in those beginning stages. Let's move on quickly to what our favorite people in Mountain View are doing Google. Some of the things you need to be aware of. Quickly, Google is showing Twitter some love. So there's been reports out that they are increasing the amount of tweets that they are indexing. I think it's five-fold now on a daily basis. Keep in mind, though, that there still is an authority effect going in. So even though they're indexing more tweets, it's not necessarily from lower level people. It's still from the individuals that have a lot of followers. So your social is becoming more of that SEO mix, but it's still that authoritative aspect is supremely important throughout that. But just know that Google is scraping and treating Twitter content much more importantly as a search signal and getting more of that information, but they still are supremely paying attention to who that conversation is coming from. Interesting tests that people have spotted out in the wild. If you're running product listing, ads. So these are the ones where you can actually send product information, pricing and reviews to Google and it'll come straight into the feed. So let's say I'm searching for a new Nikon D7000 camera. You might see individual products coming up on the Google page. 
they're actually testing, analyzing your price and displaying that this price is good and it's 18% lower than the online average. So they are playing around with showing some preference within their own PLAs and analyzing how your pricing stacks up with your other competitors. So that might change your PLA strategy, how you might alter the pricing of your own products to take advantage if that's a, a high traffic area for you. Speaking of PPC, there is a great report out on Search Engine Land. Again, we'll tweet out the link where PPC spending is continuing to show increases. So there has been a huge spike at the beginning of 2015 and 14 of people just spending more on PPC on average. And it's worth noting that spike. I don't know how many businesses have observed how their CPCs might be changing, but AdWords and PPC is getting very expensive. And it means that you really need to take the time and understand that Medium also may be playing around with some other traffic channels out there. We've seen some good success with Twitter. Maybe you want to do some viral video marketing. There's some other options out there, but just know that PPC is continuing to get more and more expensive. So you can't be so cavalier with it, or you could be hemorrhaging a lot of money. That's going to do it for us on this episode. That was crazy. Gotta, this mic's on fire. Gotta <laughs> blow it off. Thank you again so much for your time. If you enjoyed yourself, we'd ask a couple things. One, you leave a review on whatever channel you found us on. Maybe that's iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is. Helps us grow the show, but also where we stack up, things we maybe need to change. Share it with a friend, a colleague, or as Rob likes to say, a lover perhaps. It would be greatly appreciated. If you have a topic for the show, you can contact us a couple of ways. You can call us at 904-270-9603 or text us. Love to hear from our listeners. You can leave us a tweet at Twitter handle. What is it, Rob? The Bearded MKTRS. Oh, yeah. Or you can contact us directly on thebeardedmarketers.com slash contact. Any request or comment we usually get makes it on the very next episode. Again, we love hearing from you all. Have a great rest of your week. We enjoyed ourselves, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.